Support for The Moth comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so that you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash moth. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash moth. The Moth is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We all have a story to tell, and the Moth's education program is looking to help young people tell their stories. High school students can develop their storytelling skills with the Moth Summer Story Lab. Join us for a free, one-week-long workshop where you'll learn the art and craft of sharing your own story. From brainstorming to that final mic drop moment, we've got you covered. Plus, you'll make new friends, build skills that shine in school and beyond, and have a blast along the way. Whether it's at the family dinner table or a college essay starter, your story matters. Virtual and in-person options are available to fit your style. Workshops begin in August. Don't miss out. Sign up now and learn more today at themoth.org forward slash story lab. Apply by June 23rd. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Katherine Burns. This time, stories about feisty women. Women taking charge, making changes, and standing up for themselves. We'll hear about a frustrated housewife in Great Britain and a Southern mama who's had it with her son. And then young poet Amanda Gorman finds courage while auditioning for The Lion King. If the voice of this first storyteller sounds familiar, it's because you've probably heard it before. Kathleen Turner's career spans many decades. She's known for her iconic voice, beauty, and presence and as someone who stands up for herself and others. The story was recorded at a live performance at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. Here's Kathleen Turner, live at the Ma. Good evening. I was sitting at my kitchen table in the flat I was staying in in London. I was reading the front page story of a British tabloid. I was in London to play Mrs. Robinson in the play The Graduate. Uh, Now the story, which was the front page story, was about a woman whose washing machine broke down. And so she called a repairman. And he came, but without any kind of tools or equipment. And so she asked, why? And he said, well, I had to be sure there was a problem first, didn't I? (laughs) So they made an appointment for the next day, and he came back with the wrong part. So they made an appointment for the following day, and he never showed up. She called, and he said he was on another call, and he, he wouldn't get there that day. So finally, the next day, he pulled up in his truck, And she told him that she had to run out for a few errands, but she'd be right back. Why didn't he pull the truck up into the driveway to keep it off the street? And he did that. So she drove around the block, and she pulled up inside behind the truck, and she informed him that he would not be leaving until the washer was fixed. (laughs) I thought, you go, girl. Now, why this was the front page story, I've never quite been sure. Uh, the production company had given me a lovely, a lovely flat uh, in South Kensington, the top two floors of a four-story brownstone. And the third floor had the kitchen and living room, dining room. And the fourth floor, the top floor, had three bedrooms. Two were in the front facing the street and a window seat ran along uh, beneath the windows, and the third was in the back. 
facing the gardens, and that was my room. Well, I brought along a young assistant named Jessie, who'd never left the country before. I thought it might do her some good. In any case, she didn't seem to be adapting as well as I had really hoped. And she kept telling me that she was hearing strange noises in the, in the apartment, in the flat. And I would listen, and I wouldn't hear anything. And I'd sort of say, okay, no, okay, of course, it's, it must be something, you know. And one night I got home from the show, and she was almost hysterical, and she said, all right, she's figured it out, there was someone on the roof. So I called the police. And they were very nice, and they came, and they went on the roof, and they came down and informed us that, no, there was nothing on the roof. So one night, I was sleeping, and she came into the room, shaking me, waking me up, saying, you have to come, you have to come now. So I rushed into her bedroom, and yes, yes, there are strange noises. And they seem to be coming from the window box, the window seat. So I got a fireplace poker, and I pried up the top of the window seat, only to find dozens upon dozens of happy pigeons making their home. <laughs> well, Jesse slept on the sofa downstairs that night. And the first thing in the morning, I call the Kensington uh, Borough, yeah? And they give me the Department of Wildlife or something. <laughs> and, and I try to tell the woman, you know, that what's going on. And she says, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are the pigeons in or out? I said, they're in, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, no, no, sorry, we, we, we only do out. <laughs> so I called an exterminator, and he showed up, and guess what? Without any tools, without any equipment. I asked him why he had nothing with him, and he said, well, I'll have to be sure there's a problem first, don't I? <laughs> I said, no, I just called because I felt lonely. <laughs> well, he took one look and agreed that, yes, it needed exterminating. So he would come back the next day with all the, the means to do so. Meanwhile, Jesse and I were to empty those bedrooms of everything movable, of the mattress, the bedding, the pillows, the clothing, everything, anything we could move had to come out so he could fumigate, which we did. And the next day, he didn't show up. <laughs> and I called him, and he said, well, he said, I live in Hammersmith. I said, yeah. He said, well, the bridge is closed, isn't it? I said, there are seven others. <laughs> well, I'm getting pretty upset now, huh? So I call the production office, and I tell them, I'm, I, I'm not living this way. I'm not living with a bunch of pigeons in my house. <coughs> so I, you need to help me. You have to do something about this. So the doorbell rings, and in walks this young man, clearly an intern, <laughs> with a butterfly net. So I called the producer, and I said, uh, here's the deal. Either you clean out my flat, or I'm on a plane back to New York. Uh, but meanwhile, tonight, Jesse and I are going to go to the most expensive hotel I can find in London, <laughs> and you will pay for that. Well, sure enough, that place got cleaned out. And when I went back and they proudly showed me the empty, cleaned window seat boxes, I said, this is great, thank you. I said, so I guess, I guess you found the hole. <laughs> and they said, the hole? I said, yes, where the birds come in? <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Now, the play was a great success in London, and so the producers said, well, okay, now we go to Broadway. Now, I don't know how, if all of you know this or anything, but there is a scene in The Graduate where Mrs. Robinson stands naked for 23 seconds. I said, no. No, no, no. Americans are so screwed up about sex. We are such hypocrites. I don't need that shit. So I took off on a, a tour of another play. I got a script that described the lead woman as 37, but still attractive. Well, that really pissed me off. <laughs> and so I called the British producers and said, guess what? We're going to Broadway. <laughs> and so I played Mrs. Robinson on Broadway, fully nude, at 48. <laughs> mm. But the best part in some were the letters I got from women my age. I will never forget, I think the one I love the most, was a woman who wrote to me, I have not undressed in front of my husband for 10 years, and I am going to tonight. Among Kathleen Turner's numerous accolades are Golden Globes for Romancing the Stone and Pritzi's Honor, an Academy Award nomination for Peggy Sue Got Married, Tony Award nominations for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and two Grammy nominations. She's also the best-selling author of the memoir, Send Yourself Roses, and the book, Kathleen Turner on Acting. Kathleen was a delightful collaborator. Before every show, we do a big group rehearsal at the Moth office. During the rehearsal for her show, one of the other storytellers was a bit nervous and struggled to get through his story. All of a sudden, Kathleen jumped out of her chair and encouraged her fellow castmate to just shake it out. Go ahead, shake it out. And so we all stood up and we shook it out. We sat back down and he was able to finish his story. It felt like magic. Coming up, a producer fights to use her own voice in her movie, a grandmother contemplates buying trendy jeans, and a young man from Atlanta gets a verbal smackdown from his mama. That's when the Moth Radio Hour continues. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Katherine Burns. In this hour, we're talking about women owning their own power. We're turning now to our Atlanta Story Slam series, where we partner with Georgia Public Radio. With a love letter to his powerful mom, here's Cola Rum. John Gorey Jr. High Basketball Court is where we congregated. A nappy-headed menagerie of habitual mama rule breakers. Teenage maternal law transgressors from the hood. Rowdy recalcitrants from the slums who only respected the reasoning in our mother's rules if they were backed by the rod in their hands. In other words, we was them loud ghetto kids that regularly needed our asses whooped. And every few days, one of our mothers would come to the park to bolster that actuality. Her distant approach being trumpeted with the loud forewarning of, here come your mama, <laughs> by some snotty-nosed kid on the periphery of the park, which would send the targeted individual into panic and everyone else into anticipating laughter at his imminent beatdown from breaking one of his mama's rules. Oh, we laughed in an uproar of screams when John John's mother took an extension cord to his hide for cussing out Sister Anne at the corner church. 
We howled in a fit of cackles when Charlie Boy's mama went at him with her purse for stealing money out of her purse. I was the snotty-nosed kid on the periphery of the park who yelled, Baldy, here come your mama, before Miss Davis marched into the park and reinforced her rules with an old-school army belt. Voyeurs was our lot. Spectacle-hungry juveniles with dark sense of humors who viewed the ass-whoopings of our peers as free entertainment. <laughs> now, even though I was a contemporary and held intimate knowledge of the rod, I did hold one distinction over my fellow mama rule breakers. My mother had never come to the park because my mother was different. My mother was too cultured and civilized to discipline me in public like some Section 8 hood rat. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> Until that fateful day when God let me know that air was quintessential to my existence also. <laughs> I was sitting on the park bench with my friend Gargamel, listening to Run DMC on his boombox, when I heard it resound through the air like the calling of some exotic ghetto bird. Cola, here come your mama, which I didn't believe until the entire park, who had turned towards the direction of the voice, slowly turned back around and stared at me with sadistic grins on their faces that said, it's about time. <laughs> I still didn't want to believe it until she entered the park with slitted eyes, pursed lips, and clenched jaws, hence the face of a woman who was about to whoop her child's ass. She didn't have a belt, a purse, or an extension cord. Straps didn't work on me. At 13 years old, I was already 6'2", but my mother was 6'3", <laughs> and took her pound of flesh with four arms and elbows. She said, didn't I tell you to quit leaving my kitchen dirty whenever you cook because that's how you get roaches? When the word roaches came out of her mouth, the entire scene of the crime appeared in my mind. An open container of pancake batter on the countertop. Flour debris on the stove. A half-eaten pancake sitting in a plate of maple syrup left sitting in the sink. Thus, a grocery store for roaches. I wanted to tell my mother I didn't clean up because I had to get to the park to hang out with the fellas. They needed me. But I looked into her eyes and saw the laws that governed mama rule enforcement. And I knew that the ass whooping coming was non-negotiable. So I decided to break another one of her rules, which was, don't you ever run from me. <laughs> hey, the decision was simple math. Two ass whoopings at home was a lot more palatable than one in the park. <laughs> and she must have saw the decision in my mind because she abruptly attacked. I counted her attack with a fake to the left and a spin to the right. She counted my counter with the left forearm swing, which I ducked up under, then took it to the house as the entire park exploded in the laughter. <laughs> yeah, I was a habitual mama rule breaker who only respected the reasoning of my mother's rules if they were backed by the rod in her hand, a transgressor of maternal law who had determined on that fateful day that the rod that my mother used would be administered in private. Thank you. <laughs> Cola Rahm is a poet, spoken word artist, writer, and novelist from Jacksonville, Florida, who has lived in Atlanta for the past 25 years. He's published two gothic comedy novels. We asked Cola if he had any further thoughts about his strong mama after telling this story. He writes, I realized over the court incident, my mother wasn't special. She was another black mother who didn't tolerate her unruly child. Now we're going to hear a story from our Denver Story Slam, where we partner with KUNC. Here's Rhonda Williams. As part of my day job, I make riveting, action-packed, sexy, institutional films. I'm talking those films that your company forces you to watch about compliance, security, and fraud. So on my last project, they asked me to do the voiceover for the movie. I'm known for delivering, 
I'm known for coming in under budget. And if I did that voiceover, I was gonna save a big chunk of change because I wasn't gonna pay for voiceover talent. I didn't really care if I did the voiceover one way or the other, but I'm known for delivering. So I said, okay, sure. Now they picked two of the four voiceover talents, but they said, who we really want is you. So I said, I'll talk to the director, I'll let you know. <laughs> so I emailed the director and I say to him, they love the film. They have a couple of graphical edits that they want to make, and then they pick these two of the voiceover talents. But their top pick for the voiceover is me. I got an email back almost instantly, and he said, glad they liked the film. The edits shouldn't take that long. Just send over the artwork about the voiceover. In my professional opinion, this project requires a professional voiceover talent, somebody who's gonna bring the spirit and energy to this project. But ultimately, it's your project, so we can talk about it. I thought to myself, oh, he probably thinks I'm trying to fulfill some bucket list thing. You know, he just doesn't know. I don't really care one way or the other. I just gotta deliver, and I'm bringing this project in under budget. <laughs> I'll just call him. So I call Mike. And I say, hey, yeah, about the voiceover. You know, I mean, the project team just wants me to do it. I just want to deliver. You know, either way, it doesn't matter to me. I I'm going to go with, you know, your recommendation one way or the other. This is a five-minute conversation. And in that five-minute conversation, he tells me three times that I'm not a professional voiceover talent. Three times in five minutes. First time he said it to me, I knew he was just telling me his professional opinion. Second time, Lil annoyed. <laughs> Third time, I thought, what the flagstone? You know what? I don't even care about making this thing, but now here you say I can't do it? Oh, I can do it. And you know what? I'm gonna do it. And you know what else? When I do it, I'm gonna make you drink a big cup of shut up. That's what's gonna happen. <laughs> but what I say on the phone is, <laughs> Mike, the project team wants me, so let me know when you book the studio and then I'll be there. <laughs> so the day comes to do the voiceover and I arrive at the studio. And what you need to know is everything that's happened has been through email. Nothing has been face-to-face. -face. So this is our first face-to-face. -face. So I come to the studio and he says, hey, I know that voice. Glad to meet you. I say, it's good to be here. <laughs> and I remind him about that five-minute conversation where he told me three times that I wasn't a professional voiceover talent. I say, you know, you told me three times. I wasn't a personal voiceover talent. The first time, you know, I knew what you were trying to say. The second time, I was a little annoyed. Third time, I thought to myself, you know, he's right. So, yeah. I have a friend that does voiceover, so I worked with her, and she helped me work out my script, and she told me a couple of tips that I can do. And then, you know what else you told me during that conversation? You said, oh, I don't know, maybe you have some hidden talent. Well, I do. <laughs> you know what, Mike? I sing. And to sing, you need to do breathing exercises. So I work with my voice coach and I did a couple of breathing exercises. So I'm ready to do this if you want to do it right now. Let's just go in the booth. He says, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. I mean, you have a nice voice. So why don't we just do a read through? I go, yeah, let's do the read through. So we do the read through and that's just basically, I'm just reading the script and he's coaching me. Hey, can you say this, you know, a little more force? Hey, can you say this a little softer? And then we walk over to go do the booth. As we're walking over to go into the booth, he casually says to me, yeah, you know, professional would like knock this out in 15 minutes. Again with the professional. <laughs> Here's the thing. When I worked with the professional, she let me know that projects like this, for the size of text that I was going to have to read, those usually come in under 60 minutes. And that after 60 minutes, people start getting nervous.
So there you go, 15 minutes, 60 minutes. She told me I was more than competent to be able to do this in 60 minutes. So we go into the booth. And the engineer is trying to work through some things, get things ready. He's testing, hey, Rhonda, can you say a couple things? So I make sure my instruments are working. He goes, you know what? I'm not getting everything. Can you just keep talking? I said, sure, I can just keep making some sounds. So I sing. And the director looks, and he's like, hey, you're pretty good. And I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> so then they say, okay, we're ready. And so... I read that text, and I do it in under 30 minutes. And then, my friend had also told me that I was in the unique position, that I was not only the client, but I was the talent. So when I came out, that I had the opportunity to tell him what I liked and what I didn't like. And so I came out and I told him exactly what I liked, what I didn't like, and it was in the can. Here's the thing. When I look back on that experience, that's one of those things that, you know, in corporate America, we would call a um, learning opportunity. So here's what Mike learned. You don't know on first pitch if somebody's capable. And what I learned is that champions embrace the challenge. Champions don't skip the steps. They do the work. And champions they don't back down, they stand their ground. And so the next time somebody comes at me with, you're not a professional, I'll be ready to serve them a big cup of shut up. <laughs> That was Rhonda Williams. Rhonda is a communication manager in the financial services industry who volunteers her time at her church's food bank and still dabbles in voiceover work. After the events of this story, Rhonda worked with the director on a project for another group at her job, and he couldn't help singing her praises and recommending that they use her as a voiceover talent. Good man. Often being a strong woman means taking risks. This next story was told by another woman named Rhonda. It was recorded at the Housing Works Bookstore in New York City, where WNYC is a media partner of the month. Here's Rhonda Sternberg. Okay, I needed a new pair of jeans, blue jeans, and um, I hate getting blue jeans because I always feel too fat, and I hate having to deal with the sizes and going to a bigger size and all that kind of stuff. So I go into the Gap, and I pick out a few pair, and I go into the dressing room to try one on or to try them on. And the first ones I try on, I happen to look at it, and they're a size smaller than I usually get, and I thought, oh, well, this is a mistake, but let me try them on anyway. And I put my leg in the first one, and I thought, oh, shoot, they're ripped. They're torn at the knee. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to try them on anyway, just in case they fit, and then I can get another pair without the tear. But then I put my left leg in the other one, and I say, well, that's torn at the knee, too. How could this be? And then I said, oh, my God, these are ripped jeans. <laughs> this is what the kids get. I'm 73 years old. I can't have ripped jeans. However, they fit, and they fit in the smaller size, and they felt good, and I felt a little sexy, so I said, well... <laughs> so I said, well, let me go look at them in the mirror. So I go out into the three-way mirror, and I'm looking at them, and I say to the sales guy, who was this young, adorable guy, probably 22, 23 years old. He was perfectly dressed. And he said, they look good. And I said, but I'm 73 years old. And he said, there's no age as to style. You can do it. And I said, but ripped jeans, what will my friends say? And you say, but he says, you tell them it means freedom. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, freedom is okay, so I'm looking at them. <laughs> and I said, he said, look, I can go get you another pair. I can get you the same jeans that, um, without the rip. And I'm thinking, but God, what if they don't fit? And then they're the smaller size and all of that. And there's a piece of me that actually wanted the ripped jeans. 
but I didn't know what to do and this other saleswoman was there and she said, you know, maybe you need to start small. And I said, what do you mean they're as small as I can get? <laughs> and she said, no, no, I mean just a little rip, you know, a little rip at the top, not the, the knees, that's kind of advanced ripped jeans, but <laughs> a little rip at the top would be good. So I said, no, no, if I do this, I'm going all the way in. <laughs> So I looked at the guy and I said, you know, your grandmother wouldn't do this. And he said, oh, my grandmother would do this. <laughs> and I said, really? I said, and I'm looking at him and I thought, well, maybe his grandmother is like 50. <laughs> and I said, so how old is your grandmother? And he said, she is 75. And I said, 75 and she wears ripped jeans? And he said, yes, and she's gorgeous. Stunning. So I took them. <laughs> and there's a PS to this. I feel that even if I feel I'm really a beautiful person on the inside, sometimes it's just okay to be vain. Thank you. <laughs> Rhonda Sternberg grew up in Chicago, moved to New York City 50 years ago, and now resides in Park Slope, Brooklyn. She's a psychologist in private practice and teaches in the City College. She's currently writing a play about seniors living well. We asked her how actually wearing the jeans out into the world felt. Rhonda shared that she loved wearing her ripped jeans. She wrote, I wore them happily. It's been so fun. My younger students thought I looked cool, while friends my own age said, good salesman. I answered, yes, but not in the way you think. I believed then and still believe that we connected, that he got me, and that he spoke from his heart. Coming up, a woman struggling with arthritis decides to swim the English Channel, and a young Amanda Gorman auditions for The Lion King on Broadway. That's when the Moth Radio Hour continues. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Katherine Burns. In this hour, we're hearing stories about women who left their comfort zones behind, like our next storyteller, who comes to us from our London Story Slam. Here's Shontal Lyons, live at the Moth. Everyone wants to make their parents proud, right? My dad is a marathon runner, and I was a couch potato for most of my life until I was 23 when I took up running. I hated it at first, but I stuck to it, and I started to realize why my dad loved it so much. I decided that just like him, I was going to run marathons. The only thing was that for a while, I'd been feeling some pain in my hips and my back and the running made it worse. So I went to the GP and I got tests and I was told that I had something called ankylosing spondylitis, which I found out was a type of arthritis. And it's genetic and it is degenerative. And actually, before I want to go any further, I want to rewind back to when I was 13 years old and I was on a summer holiday in Mallorca with my family. Um, one morning I was sleeping in, as I usually did, and my dad went out water skiing and he had an accident. My, my dad was run over by a speedboat and the propeller cut through most of his left arm uh, and he was saved and the arm was saved but we didn't know if it would ever work again and he really needed that hand because he was a surgeon. And in the aftermath of the accident, his colleagues did not think that he would ever go back to work. 
But fortunately, no one is more stubborn than my dad. So even though the nerve was too badly damaged to be fully repaired, he found ways around it and he did go back to work. And years later, when, when I was diagnosed with arthritis, I was terrified. I was so scared of the word degenerative and knowing that for me, recovery would not be an option. I had to say goodbye to that vision of that final sprint down the mall in London. Uh, I actually had to uh, give up running completely because my body couldn't handle it. But I thought about my dad and how after the accident, he, he had just flowed around all the obstacles in his path. He had worked so hard to get back to the, where he was before his accident. And I was sure that just like him, I could adapt. So after I'd given up running, I got into a swimming pool. And I didn't enjoy it at first, but I stuck to it. I got stronger and I got faster. I got to the point where I was overtaking most of the men in the fast lane, which was amazing. But I still wished that I could do something as incredible as run a marathon. It was this ache that I just couldn't let go of. And then just this year, in January, I found out that there was a charity called Aspire and they were running relay swims of the channel. Now, the way a channel relay works is you have a team of six people and each person swims for an hour at a time and then swaps out. And you just repeat that until you get to France. Very simple. <laughs> so I signed up. Um, the training was very difficult. They make you swim for hours off Dover Beach with ferries in the background and jellyfish stinging your face. And the water when you start the training is 11 degrees Celsius and they don't let you wear a wetsuit. <laughs> but I got through that training stronger than I had ever felt in my life. And when the relay came around in September, I felt ready. The first swim of the relay went fine. It was cold, but it was fine. But the second swim was just after midnight in the middle of the shipping lane. And when I jumped into the water, I found myself in the roughest sea that I have ever swum in. The waves just threw me around. I kept swallowing salt. Uh, the, the support boat next to me looked like it was either about to crash down on me or I couldn't even see it. And I couldn't swim fast. All I could do basically was not drown. And I wish that at that moment, I, I could say that at that moment, I thought of my dad and everything he'd been through and I knew I could do this. But to tell the truth, um, all I was thinking was, oh my God, this is dangerous. When are they going to call this off? <laughs> so after that hour, which they let me finish, I got onto the boat feeling like a bit of a failure. Uh, but the team went on, we were allowed to go on. And a few hours later, it was my turn again, the third time, and France was close. And just before I went in, the boat pilot came out and he said to me that if I swam hard, I could beat the tide and land the team in France. But if I didn't, then the tide would turn and it would take us another two or three hours to get there. When I hit that water, I was exhausted, but I knew that this was the final sprint. So while I was swimming, dawn, broke and it lit up the coast for me but that coast never seemed to get any closer no matter how hard I swam and I tried so hard and I didn't believe that I would make it I actually felt sure that the tide was already taking me away and then I saw the seabed under me and I kept swimming until I could put my feet down and I walked onto that beach in France and after I got onto the support boat afterwards I took a selfie with a glass of champagne and I sent it to the family WhatsApp group. And my dad didn't reply to say that he was proud of me because he doesn't like writing or saying sloppy things like that. But he didn't need to because I know more than anything that I am my father's daughter. Thank you. That was Shontal Lyons. Chantal is a writer and environmentalist living in Bristol, England. She still swims in cold water when she can convince herself to. She says that swimming has continued to be a powerful medicine against her arthritis. To see photos and videos of her epic swim, go to themoth.org. While there, you can call our pitch line and leave a two-minute version of a story you'd like to tell. Have you ever pushed yourself mentally or physically? We'd especially love to hear from the women out there. 
The number to call is 877-799-MOTH, or you can pitch us your story at themoth.org. In college, I spent a semester studying abroad at Oxford University, and I studied abroad there in part because I never would have gotten into it if I applied normally. Uh, But I got into this study abroad program and went overseas and was so excited to study at Oxford. And it only took me a couple of days to realize how out of my element I was. Everyone was studying systematic theology and historical philosophy, and I was there to study creative writing, and I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I started to feel really intimidated all the time. And one day I was walking to class and saw a flyer for the Oxford men's hockey team, ice hockey team. And I'd grown up playing ice hockey. Our high school team won a couple of state championships. And I thought, gosh, I want to go try out for this team. The only problem was I had only played on girls teams. And this was was a men's league. I didn't know if I could cut it. Um, But I tried out and I made it because the Oxford men's hockey team was full of people who were much smarter than they were athletic. And I fit right in. And so we started playing games and we lost. We lost to Germany and we lost to France and we lost to Leeds and we lost to Manchester and we lost to everybody. Um, but the very last game of the season, the very last play of the game, I got a breakaway and I scored the winning goal. And we all went back to the locker room to, to change and to celebrate. And someone walked in with a great huge case of beer and set it down at my feet. And I said, what's this for? And he said, you know, we have a tradition and you didn't know about it because you're, you're new and we've never won a game with you, but we won. And someone is declared man of the match of the winning team, the person who contributes most to the victory. And you, Courtney, you are the man of the match. So everyone else wrote publishable papers about brilliant things, but no one else that semester was man of the match, the Oxford men's ice hockey team. Remember, you can tell us your own story at themoth.org. For our final storyteller, we have poet Amanda Gorman. Long before she won the hearts of the world with her poem at the January inauguration, she was, at just 19, a moth Grand Slam champion. We were thrilled to see her stun the world with her gorgeous poem, The Hill We Climb. A nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. The amazing single mother she mentioned is the driving force of her Grand Slam winning story from Boston, where we partner with PRX and WBUR. Here's Amanda Gorman, live at the Moth. I'm gonna be a mighty king like no king before. Everybody look left, look right, everywhere you look, I'm standing in the spotlight. These were the words that I repeated to myself as I walked into the LA audition room where a hundred other girls were trying out to be Nala on Broadway in New York. The air smelled of Hollywood and desperation. You know, it was crammed with these monster mothers and the savage children. You have no idea. These kids are like little demons. They'll step the foot out to trip you. They'll be doing pirouettes around just to show off, randomly just do a backflip because they can, (laughs) whatever. And walking in, I was just really glad that I would never be (laughs) like that and that most of all, my mom would never be like one of those crazy, loco stage moms. I walked in and I remember her saying, Amanda, don't worry about it, just have fun and try your best. And I remember, you know, being in the corner, having my name on my back, doing my dance moves, stretching, getting it on, and a mother walks by and she goes, that's cute, but it's not amateur night. Yes. My mom snapped. She went, hell no. Nah. I know that lady didn't say that to my daughter. The lion of the king grew out. All of a sudden, it was just no lines drawn. Yelling nasty comments at the other girls like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you other white girls didn't get the memo, but Lion King takes place in Africa. You can't <laughs> learn melanin, honey, okay? Can't do makeup for that. 
I'm in the corner trying to pretend that my mom isn't my mom. And my twin sister's there. She's there, not really for emotional support, but just to let me know how much I can fail. Uh, so she comes up to me and she's like, yo, Amanda, I know you're nervous to like audition because like you have a speech impediment and everything and like an auditory processing disorder and you look like the black girl version of Vessel Brand. <laughs> but just have fun and be yourself. My mom said, move out the way. You can have fun when I have my one-way ticket to New York City. Mom, what about being myself? Being yourself won't get mommy. I mean, Amanda, <laughs> to the Lion King. Amanda, come over here. There's something you need to learn. You need to put yourself out there. So when you see the casting director, tell him you've already menstruated. <laughs> You're post-pubescent. You won't grow. You'll look nine for forever. And if that doesn't work out, you can always, you know, act like a monkey, walk on your hands or some crap like that, and they might cast you as Rafiki. <laughs> I am trying to kind of hear what my mom says, but also stay sane. And I remember closing my eyes and just feeling I was so close to my dream. I, in my head, I saw myself loud and proud on a stage in front of a crowd, proving that a girl who's black and skinny and geeky and had a speech impediment could make it to Broadway. Finally, after a little bit, they call my number. I walk into the audition room, and in my head, I'm reciting the lyrics. I'm, 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 I'm gonna be a, a mighty king like no king before. I'm working on my roar, trying to be heard, but these words don't sound right. Could I ever be in the spotlight? And I'm there in front of the casting director, and I remember what my mom told me, so I said, yo. <laughs> good news. I've already had my period, so... This is as high as I'm going to get. I can stay Nala for a really long time, if you know what I mean. What I, I cannot imitate his face. I'm not going to try it. Um, and then I tell him, you know, I know I just sang that little Mighty King song, but I have other stuff in me. No! And then I heard my mom's voice in my head telling me to pull out all the stops that if worst came to worst, and this was worst at the moment, I should, you know, walk on my hands or something and like act like a monkey. So I do not lie, I stepped back. <laughs> and walked on my hands out of the audition room. <laughs> True. And I was waiting there with the other girls. Everyone's so tense. The monster moms are pushing people out the way so they can hear. And they start listing the names of people who get callbacks. And I'm so excited. And they haven't called my name yet. And the casting director comes out and says, thank you, everyone, for coming. That is all. And I remember feeling so broken by what was supposed to be my big break. And my mom came over to me and said, you know, it's okay, you tried your best. You're always going to be Nala in my heart. And part of me was so glad to know that I would never be like one of those girls who made it to Broadway because I would still make it here. I'd still make it to now being loud and proud in front of a crowd on a stage where I know I am a mighty king, mightier than before. I might be working on my war, but look left, look right. Here I am tonight in the spotlight.
Amanda Gorman is the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history, as well as an award-winning writer and graduate of Harvard University. She's written for the New York Times and has three books coming out with Penguin Random House. Seeing Amanda in her full radiant glory on stage at the inauguration gave me hope for our country's future, one that I hope will be marked by a rise in female leadership and strength. I'm in my early 50s, but I know so many brilliant women in their late teens and 20s, and I love thinking about the world they're going to create and lead one day. So as we close out this hour of stories by and about fierce women, let's hear from Amanda one more time. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. This episode of the Moth Radio Hour was produced by me, Jay Allison, and Catherine Burns, who also hosted and directed the stories in the hour. Co-producer, Vicki Merrick. Associate producer, Emily Couch. Additional Grand Slam coaching by Maggie Sino. The rest of the Moss leadership team includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, Jennifer Hickson, Meg Bowles, Kate Tellers, Jennifer Birmingham, Marina Cluche, Suzanne Rust, Brandon Grant, Inga Gladowski, Sarah Jane Johnson, and Aldi Casa. Moss stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our pitch in this hour came from Courtney Ellis of Mission Viejo, California. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from David Grusin, Jimmy McGriff, Hot Chocolate, Rabbit Rabbit Radio, Andrew Bird, Joss Links, and Fabio Do Nascimento. You'll find links to all the music we use on our website. We receive funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.